Good morning. I think some of the sessions are still letting out, so we'll just give a brief second for people to get settled a little bit. My name is Dan Provo, and I'm the director of the Oklahoma History Center, which is part of the Oklahoma Historical Society. It's also my honor to be the chair of the host committee and a board member for the Oklahoma Museums Association. On behalf of those organizations and the city of Oklahoma City, I'd like to welcome you all to the 2010 annual meeting of the American Association for State and Local History and the Oklahoma Museums Association. Thank you, we're very glad you're here. I was told just before coming up here that at this point, I believe we have roughly 950 people registered for the conference. I think about 80 vendors and about 300 people at any given time joining us online for some of the online sessions. So it's an extraordinary turnout and uh, it's a lot of fun. I think people are having a good, good time networking, talking, hopefully going to a few parties and a few other things like that. I know there's a few photographs floating around from last night of people in boas and rock and roll instruments, so we'll look forward to seeing what pops up on Facebook and different things like that. As you know, in order to succeed with a meeting of this size and complexity, it requires the help and the support of generous sponsors, dedicated staff, and the talents and commitments of many people in many organizations. Please allow me to take a moment to recognize members of the host committee. What I would do is I'd ask you to please refer to the back of your program guide, look up their names, and in the meantime, I'd like to ask all the members of the host committee to please stand so that we may recognize you. So members of the host committee, please stand up. In any meeting, there are always a few individuals that, even while serving on committees, go above and beyond. I'd like to additionally recognize Brenda Granger and Stacy O'Daniel from the Oklahoma Museum Association. Brenda and Stacy, are you in here somewhere? They've been manning a booth in the hallway, so I'm not quite sure. But for those of you that are members of the Museum Association, you know that these folks are extraordinary. And you have to run pretty hard to keep up with them at any given time. So let us thank them for their special efforts. In addition, Robin Davis from the Oklahoma History Center, Barbie Elder from the Oklahoma Department of Tourism and Recreation Department, and Susan Feller from the Oklahoma Department of Libraries. These folks really, again, went above and beyond. In addition to the numerous and diverse tours across the state, the wonderful evening events, our interpreters, tour guides, bus drivers, generous site hosts, one of the things that helps make this session, I think, particularly special is the development of the tribal track sessions. I think these sessions are helping to encourage new conversations, collaborations, sharing perspectives. I think everyone benefits from that particularly the visitors to all of our respective sites and institutions. A special thanks goes to the Tribal Track Chair, again, Susan Feller over here. What I would also like to share with you <laughs> I'd also like to ask the Tribal Track Committee to please stand so that we may recognize you as well. So everybody part of the Tribal Track Development Committee, please stand. Tribal sessions and programs, including today's plenary session by Gerard Baker, are sponsored by the Association of Tribal Archives, Libraries, and Museums, with support from the Oklahoma Department of Libraries and the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Please join me in thanking the Association, Susan McVeigh, Director of the Oklahoma Department of Libraries, and Marcia Semmel, Acting Director of IMLS and the IMLS staff. I'd also like to add a personal note of thanks to my staff at the Oklahoma History Center and to the staff of AASLH. 
Everybody's worked very hard and very well together, and as I said, it takes the efforts of everyone to make something like this work. So thank you all very much. It's now my honor and privilege to introduce today's speaker. Gerard Baker recently retired from the National Park Service as the Assistant Park Director for Native American Relations. He also served as the superintendent of Mount Rushmore National Memorial. A member of the Mandan Hadatsa tribe, Gerard Baker grew up on the Fort Berthold Reservation in North Dakota. When he joined the National Park Service, he held fast to his American Indian identity, learning more about his people's history and traditions at every place in which he was stationed. At Mount Rushmore, he expanded his vision to embrace the vast diversity of cultural traditions and stories that make up our national heritage. Please join me in welcoming today's speaker, Gerard Baker. And good morning. It's so good to be back here in the very cold weather of Oklahoma, leaving the hot South Dakota the other day. I think last week I woke up in my teepee, it was about 38 degrees outside, a little bit of snowflake, so it's good to have that heat down here. It is really good to be here, and as I mentioned, um, for all my friends down here from the uh, Chickasaw country, if I can remember how to say this right, it's Chipma, and uh, the Cherokees, I guess, Osceolo, is that how you say that? Anyway, well, my language, howdy. Um, I would like to say, which means that my language is so good to be here. I am from the Mandan Herazi tribe. And historically, we came from a village called the Awadigecho, the five villages. They were made up of the Awadigecha, Awakha'awe Herazi, which we now call the Herazi people. And the Mandans, my father's tribe, the Nupta Nuptari. I'm the first one of my reservation, my first generation, I should say. My generation is the first ones to not have the opportunity to live in the great Missouri River Valley. We were cheated out of that by the Corps of Engineers. We were cheated out of that by them building a dam and removing us from our beautiful bottomlands. And so I was born um, on the prairies not in the woodlands of, my, of the people that, that, uh, where I come from. My father built a log house the year I was born in 1953. And we lived out in the boonies, and I love to tell the story because we lived out in the boonies, we had no electricity and no running water. And um, I started learning, I, as you all just heard, I retired after 35 years with one of the greatest organizations in the world, and that's the National Park Service. And I know some, there are some folks in National Park Service here, and I'm glad to see you here. For the first time in 35 years, I did not put on a uniform. I have a new uniform that uh, I stole from my brother, actually, about the same size. <laughs> but I learned about the Park Service and learned about my people sitting around my father's log house and my mother's log house. I learned about the 1916 Organic Act from the elders of my tribe, believe it or not. They didn't mention anything about the 1916 Organic Act. They didn't mention anything about the National Park Service. What they did mention was about our history and the telling of history and the utilization of oral histories to tell our stories. I can remember as a young man, I grew up in a three, four-bedroom log house, or four-room log house, I should say. One room was obviously my mother and father's bedroom. One room was my sister's bedroom. One room was the kitchen. And the living room served as my brother and I's bedroom and living room. And I can remember we grew up in the, what we call the West Segment of the Fort Berthold Reservation. After they condemned their land and took it away and moved us out, my father was very upset, as all were. And it was his goal to move as far away from the river as possible, and he did. Our back pasture fence was the reservation line, and outside the reservation line was Norwegian territory. And I can remember that each spring my dad would make us, my brother and I, 
move our fence at least two feet a year. <laughs> so after a while, we had a pretty damn big ranch. <laughs> and I learned some Norwegian cuss words, actually. But I can remember living there, and, and I can remember the old timers. That's when I first, I didn't, I didn't realize these were the, what I call the original warriors of my time. These were names like Yellow Wolf. These were names like uh, Sitting Crow. And they would come over to our house a lot of times in the evening. Of course, we had no electricity and no telephone. And as they came there, they would come different times in the afternoon, different times in the evening. Some would come in old vehicles. Some would come in team of horses. And no matter what happened, they would get us up, my brother and I. And we would have to take care of either the horses or we would have to help prepare maybe the dinner my mom would start making at that time of night. And again, I first, uh, y'all heard about Indian time, and I really believe that that meaning was there because we had no time as far as the clock. When people came over, we fed them. When people came over, we visited them. My father, whose um, name was Izushka Choba, which means uh, sacred horse, was a leader in many different ways, from a, from a judicial standpoint, because he was a judge, which means I couldn't raise heck very much, to a leader in the consulting form of the elders. People would bring their, their children over to have them talk to them, and of course I got to listen. And a lot of times, these old guys, I can remember the first times when these old guys would come over, and they were scary looking fellas, just very scary, and I, and I figured these guys were on warpath. And I can remember my, my mother's father, whose name was Youngbird, on his deathbed. I had the opportunity to hear from him about how he would, as a young man, go out and had the responsibility of going with the hunters when they were living at a place called um, Fort Union area, up in the confluence of the Missouri and the Yellowstone River. And he would go with the hunters as far away as what is now was Mile City, Montana. Those of you know geography, it's quite a ways away. And it was his responsibility to, to bring the meat back under the cover of darkness because they were still scared of the enemy tribes that were still hunting in that country. Now, this is my grandfather. And I remember him as, as on his deathbed talking, telling these stories, talking about what it was like to hide in the daytime in the bug brush and the thorns of the valley of the, of the Yellowstone River. They would also talk about these old guys would come in. I remember coming in and I would sit around my father and mother, especially my dad, and I was youngest of my family. They would always make me sit by these old guys. And they were scary looking. No smiles. They would joke and you'd look at them. You couldn't remember if you're supposed to laugh or not. And it was at that time, and as I was from that generation, where we couldn't say anything. We could not ask questions because it wasn't polite. We had to have respect for these people, these men and their wives, who we oftentimes calls Magu, grandmother and grandfather, how we would address them. And I can remember sitting around the table with my brother, my older brother Paige, who just retired from the Park Service too, by the way, and, of course, he used to always get me in trouble because after a while, as a young kid, four, three, four years of age, five years of age maybe, you start getting restless. And I can remember the old guys, real tough looking, talking about them. They always carried two things. They always carried on one side of them, they carried a great big knife, about this big. Of course, when I was young, it was about that big. And on one side, they would carry their medicine. And I didn't realize it was their pipe, their pipe bag until much later. But as I start getting restless, and my brother start raising, heck, me, make, me, make me do bad things as far as wiggling around, this kind of stuff. The old guys would get up. And they walk over to where I was sitting on a table, I remember, and they would say, you young guys are supposed to listen to us. But here you are not listening. They said, well, you must not need your ears. And they would start grabbing for their knives. <laughs> and I can remember that, and I can look at his knife, and I'd be, great, big knife. And he'd say, you know, he'd grab this bag, and he'd say, Here's all those young guys' ears that they didn't listen to. And I could swear inside those things, I could see those ears moving in there. Now, that did two things. It kept me wide awake, and it made me listen, because later on, they would ask me questions. 
Yeah, they told stories, especially about my clan, which was the Apuka Wika. I belonged to the Lokap clan of the Herads of the Awadikha, actually. They would talk about societies. And again, like I first mentioned, it was here where I started learning about the Organic Act, which is basically the act that talks about preserving not only the natural resources of our country, but the cultural resources of our people, you included. And it was at this time that struck my interest as I'm wondering what I should do for my life. I went to Indian school for a while. Like a lot of us in my generation, I got sent on to boarding school, to a Catholic boarding school, actually. And I went to church so much that I have no more need to go. <laughs> and I still can't kneel down because when we got in trouble, the nuns used to make us kneel on broomsticks and teach us discipline that way. It was at this time, again, that we would talk about the traditions. The old guys would sit there and talk about the way of life, and they would discourage us from telling people. For a long, long time in my generation, they would always say, keep your history to yourself. Don't ever tell the white people what's going on, because they're going to make fun of you. Don't ever tell people what you've been through, because they're not going to believe you. And that's how I started out with history. We knew it. We kept it to ourselves. We were never allowed to talk about our, our, our ceremonies. And we still aren't to a certain extent. We were never allowed to share sacred songs. And we still aren't to a certain extent. But when I first got into the national park system, I had no idea, no idea what I was getting into. In fact, I thought I was getting a job in maintenance and road construction went down to a place called Theodore Roosevelt National Park. They gave me a badge, a gun, and a car. I had no idea what I was going to do. <laughs> All my cousins came, and they wanted to go hunting the big deer in the parks. I remember that. <laughs> One thing I realized right away when I started working with the national park system is that we were, we were losing out, or we were leaving out, one important story. And that was a human story of our national parks. But I remember sitting there and watching Theodore Roosevelt, and I was a law enforcement. I worked at maintenance, first of all. My first job, by the way, in national parks, and I'm very proud of that, was cleaning toilets. I did that for, some, for two summers, actually, clean toilets and pick up trash and this kind of stuff. And I also kept, um, we kept uh, watch over a little park, a little campground. And... But I can remember going to the, when I was on road patrol, I can remember going to the interpretive talks. And I remember hearing talking about all oh, the great cottonwoods. And I remember talking about all the natural resources of the North Dakota Badlands. But one thing was missing. They also talked about Theodore Roosevelt, of course, because the name of the park. But I kept telling myself, there's something missing. And what's missing is the, this, the, the real, the true, if you will, story, the full story of the occupations of this country. And that's from the American Indian side of things. Now, as I was warned groups before I start, I'm not very politically correct. I never will be. I'm an American Indian. And I always will be an Indian. And so I started looking at that. And I was very fortunate enough to get my, after I graduated from college at Southern Oregon State, up in National Oregon, I got my first permanent job at Nyferb Indian Villages. And this is a place where my ancestors spent literally hundreds of years occupying the fertile valley of the Missouri River and trading. We were, the, we were the hub of the trading network long before White Man came, long before the American Fern Company, long before Hudson Bay. We were the traders. And it was there that we lived a complete life until the smallpoxes came and destroyed our way of life and moved us. And I always believe in the, in, the, in the strength and the power of oral history, but I never saw it work, or I never saw that meaning work until I lived there. I heard about this place all of my life. And my folks never took me there. It was less than probably 200 miles away. Granted, when I was real young, we didn't have a vehicle. We had a bunch of horses. But when we did have vehicles, they didn't take us. I never, I was always concerned about that. Why wouldn't we go? When I got a job there, and I realized what happened is that because when I came back home, about the first month I was working there, I came back, all my grandmas, or about three or four of my grandmothers, my clan came over to our house. 
And they put on a ceremony for me because I was working at Knife River. And they gave me very strict instructions. And they were very stern about this. And they said, whatever you do, never pick up anything, especially bone from that ground. Because you will bring smallpox back to our tribe again. And we'll get it again. And I laughed it off for, for a couple of days. I was thinking, wow, that happened. Last smallpox we had it was 1837. And I started working there in 1979 when I graduated from college. But I seen the sincerity on their faces, and I, and I felt the ceremonies, and I felt the smudgings they did, and I heard the songs they sang for me. And I understood that these folks, my ancestors, who are now my ancestors, last generation, really, really believed. And that's why we never went back. In fact, the first time my, my folks came out there was that summer in 1979. They came out there, and it was a very hot day, and I can remember my, I was out in the park already doing my work, and I can remember my mother and father coming out there. I remember walking out in the car, and I was watching my family coming out there, and all of a sudden, my mother stops and goes back to the car. And it's like 90-some degrees, and she gets a blanket and puts a blanket on. And I walked out, and I said, Mom, what are you doing? Get your ass. Get your really hot out here. She said, when I come here, first time I've been here, she said, I have to respect the old people and we have to cover. And I thought about that. I thought about that. And it said a lot about oral history. It said a lot about our beliefs. It said a lot about our existence. For a long time, I used to argue with history teachers when I was, especially in high school and, and sometimes in college, and they would all say, there's no Mandans left. The Mandans died off in the smallpox. And that was the belief. And I would have to convince them. I started setting my sights when I was in the park service and, and, and start moving. Because I figured I'm not going to be a patrol ranger all my career, nor was I going to be a maintenance worker all my career. I want to get bigger, bigger and better if at all possible. And as I said before, I go back to Theodore Roosevelt, and I said, we're not telling our story. Well, I went to the chief of interpretation at that time and told them I would love to give a story. I would love to give a talk. And I figured I'll be safe because one of the worst things you can do, I think, in a way, is speak in front of your own people. Worst things you can do. And so I figured, oh, back home, I, you know, I was the, our reservation was about 30 miles away. Nobody's going to come there. Nobody got cars. They're not going to care. So I volunteered to give a program. And at that time, I was fancy dancing with all the feathers. I could, I'll hide behind my feathers, and I can dance and talk about my dances and this kind of stuff. Oh, that night, I was all ready. I was ready to go. Put my outfit on, came out from behind the screen, had a little campfire. That's when we could have fires in the parks. Came out there, and the first two rows were family. <laughs> Worst program I ever gave in my career. Worst program. Let me go on a little bit, because I went, I went to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead a little bit, and, and I go up to a place for my first superintendency as an international park, and that was a place called Little Bighorn Battlefield. It used to be called Custer's Battlefield. And I went up there, and it was interesting because one of the things I do as a superintendent, even as a manager, district ranger, whatever I was, supervisory position, when I go into a new park, I like to go in there in incognito, if you will, as if I can be incognito. But I go up there, and I did not have a uniform on. And that little Bitcoin was really interesting because, again, we had really good interpreters telling the history of little Bitcoin. Obviously, for, for, for this time of existence, it was called Custer Battlefield because the primary concern, the primary interpretive concern was about George Custer and his troops who suffered a stunning defeat, as they said. And I went up there and I sat in the audience list, listening to our young interpreters speak, and they did such a great job that it scared me. I would sit there and listen to them and they were talking about how the troops, after they got killed, were mutilated by the Indians and the women. And they get such vivid detail of cutting this and just, I mean, it was amazing. And I, I looked around the audience and I'm thinking, holy smokers, I'm the only Indian in here. <laughs> and all these people are starting to look at me, kind of getting mad as if I'm the one that was cutting these people up. 
the power of interpretation. And so I made, a, I made a program where I started to contact some of the descendants of the people who actually fought in that battle and going after the young people. And I started hiring them. I started hiring Lakotas and Ogallalas. We already had people there from the Crow Reservation because it's within the Crow boundaries. But I want to hear the other side, and it caused a ruckus. But one of the things I did is I started believing that, because I've always worked with elders all my life. I didn't know they were elders, they were just my grandparents. And I started bringing them in. In fact, I organized a meeting in a different place, a different reservation. And I had a lot of folks there that wanted to talk about, because I wanted them to come on. I wanted people to come in to the Little Bighorn Battlefield. And we need to hear the other side, if you will, that story. But again, there was a lot of mistrust. There was a lot of interpretation at one time that was totally against, if you will, it seemed like American Indians and the way of life at that time, making George Custer a hero and keeping him there. And so I remember I organized, what I want to do is I want to bring people together and sit them down side by side so we can have communication, so we can start talking, so we can start asking each other those stories because I'm sure that my, what my grandparents told me, don't ever tell white people. A lot of people told that in Northern Plains, most likely, because of the experiences they had in boarding schools or with the government and with other negative things that happened to us. And so I can remember I, bring, I brought people together and, and one, I said, well, just, we're just gonna have a meeting. Like I said, I went off on a different reservation, got, there was about a thousand people there, young and old. And I can remember standing there in my uniform my flat hat, telling them what we want to do, inviting them back to their national park, inviting them back to their homelands. And when I got through with that presentation, there was silence in the crowd. And I can remember this one, this one gentleman sitting way back in that corner. He raised his hand. And I said, yes, sir. And he stood up and he said, I will never come back there. Because if I come back there, you're going to arrest me. Because it was my grandfather that killed George Custer. The power of oral history. And I had to explain to him that I'm not 7th Cav. I had to explain to him that what the National Park Service was about and that they should come. After all, we Indians won that. And it's their homeland, depending on whose treaty you believed. And so the time came when, they, when, when we got together, they, they agreed to come. And I started talking about getting the young people to work here at Little Bighorn to tell the stories that they heard. Because if you look at it from a historic point of view, or from an academic point of view, I should say, you have two different versions of history there, like we do every place. You have the academic side, which is great, by the way. The academic side, as far as Little Bighorn, the way I saw it, told the whole entire story of the battle from the history of the, of the Indian Wars all the way through and the different wars that led up to the Little Bighorn in 1876. So you have all that to tell. That's one version that's a very good academic because you can, you can see the whole battlefield, if you will. When I start listening to the Indians, I start listening to the, to the Lakotas and the Ogallalas and the Hunkpapas and all these other folks that were there that actually fought. It was amazing. What they talked about was not the battle from an entire standpoint, from a national standpoint, if you will. They talked the battle from their standpoint, that they heard from their grandfathers whose father had fought in that battle. And they hadn't, if they were on the Custer side of things, on the Custer Hill area, they had no concern what Reno, Reno or Benteen was doing five to ten miles away. Their battle was there. And their battle involved about 20 feet of where they were fighting. 
including with their, either their ladies, their wives, their girlfriends, or whatever, singing their songs and holding their horses, things we never heard before. One of the best tours I ever took is I loaded up about nine, I think it was seven or nine elders from Pine Ridge, whose grandfathers had been in that battle and we went for a drive along the battlefield. Amazing stories came out of there. And I started understanding and realizing the need to push us even farther. The need to bring in people to sit down and let them speak for once as a government person. So we can actually sit there and listen. And it was amazing. We got together with the tribes and the park service. We got together and we started bringing in young people to tell that side of the story. And the reaction we got from the audience was incredible. One of the first young men that I, that I hired, he's an artisan now, named Mr. Michael Marshall. He's a big, tall son of a gun, about 6'3". His first program, he came in afterwards, came into my office. I never see it. I was doing my work in the office. He came in there and he said, hey, Super, hey, Super Tan, he said, I need your permission to do something. I said, what's that? He said, I got to beat the hell out of this guy. <laughs> Apparently, halfway through his presentation, somebody stood up in the audience and started cussing him out. He said, we didn't come here to hear about the Indian. We came here about Custer and his heroics. And it was that time that we started getting a lot of complaints about telling our side of the story. They even complained so much that they sent a team in from Washington, D.C. and from our regional office to tell my staff how to interpret. And we did that for a week. We had training sessions. They sat down with our staff, white and Indian included. Did the academics of interpretation, A to Z. And when they all left, we gathered again. And my staff was concerned. What do we do? I told them, I said, we, we tell our story. We tell our story. We don't worry about the academics of it. We tell our story. Because there was such uniqueness about that. Now, a lot happened between there and my last position as superintendent of Mount Rushmore. I came down here to beautiful Oklahoma, working in Chickasaw National Recreation Area, which was a great, great experience. I also did Lewis and Clark since that time. And again, that was a, that was a difficult transition for Lewis and Clark. I love Lewis and Clark. I studied them all my career. I love to tell the story because there's a good friend of mine named Eric Holland here who him and I did a lot of experiences just like the Indians and just like Lewis and Clark, if you will, built gardens, earth lodges, sweats, and so forth. But it was there that I said, again, understanding the need to tell, to tell our own story. And with Lewis and Clark, it was the same thing. I got people together, all these different tribes from coast to coast, from Monticello all the way through to Fort Colatsop. And the first time I got these folks together, one of the first times was in the great state of South Dakota, where I now reside. And I had a room full of Indians, huh? And I was talking about Lewis and Clark because I had just been named a superintendent of Lewis and Clark Trail and the Trail of the Exhibit. And I was in charge of putting, pulling together the bicentennial of Lewis and Clark for the country from the government and National Park Service standpoint. And I told folks, we, we can't tell a story. We can't tell a story about including the Indians. In fact, remember, I went to D.C., sitting in D.C., sitting in, I think it was, uh, I can't remember, White House or someplace. We had a big event. Everybody was excited. And they were going to introduce me. Got to that point. And they said, ladies and gentlemen, blah, 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 superintendent, the brand new superintendent, Lewis and Clark, bicentennial, Gerard Baker, and I stood up. And everybody was happy. And they said, oh, yeah, we're going to celebrate Lewis and Clark. So when I stood up, I told him, I said, one thing we'll never do is celebrate Lewis and Clark. You could have heard a pin drop in that White House. I said, what we will do is we will commemorate a historic event. But in this time around, I encourage them, and in many ways, I encourage you 
for your own Lewis and Clark story, don't get back on the boat with Lewis and Clark. We know that story. We can read the journals. As I told them, be in that village when that boat comes around the corner. Be in that village with a wondering of what's going to happen to the future. For some tribes, it was just another boat. For some tribes, the first time they ever saw white people. And what saved them, of course, was Sagagawea. What saved them, of course, was a slave named York. And so we start thinking about that. And we got tribes on board. And I can remember again gathering the folks together like this. And talking about how we were going to talk about Lewis and Clark. Primarily in two different elements. From a natural resource standpoint. From a cultural resource standpoint. In four different arenas. What Lewis and Clark was doing. What, 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 what this country was like before Lewis and Clark. When I said before Lewis and Clark. We intended and we did say before the coming of the white man. What this country was like. What was the politics? What was the trade? What was the ceremony? What was territory? Then we talk about what happened during Lewis and Clark with the same questions. Then we talked about what happened the last 200 years and that was the most difficult part to tell. And the last thing we talked about is what it would look like in the next 200 years. I went all over the country trying to get people on to tell their side of the story. One of the things I told, I haven't, I'm just now starting to tell the story because I, I was a little bit scared back in those days. I also met with the KKK out west. That was an interesting meeting. <laughs> For one thing, they were upset with me because two things, I'm an Indian and I'm, I'm a government. And I said, you know what, even though I don't agree with what you, what you are, unfortunately, you're still part of America and you still have a story to tell. But they wouldn't come on board and that was okay with me. <laughs> and so we start telling that story and, and, and I'll skip now to, I got this call one day and they said, because I had, I had some heart problems, I had some heart problems, and I decided the, the, the Lewis and Clark program was going. It was all set up. We had American Indians speaking all over the place. We had a place, we had a, 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 a um, system called the Tent of Many Voices where they could tell their story from farmers to ranchers to American Indians to timbermen to fishermen to everything and everybody. And we got this recorded, by the way. Then I got this call one day. They said, you know, we're looking for a superintendent at a place called Mount Rushmore. And as the, maybe some of you heard this speech before, but you know, a long time ago, I told, my, I told my family that there's two places in my career that I would never work. A place called then Custer Battlefield and a place called, guess what, Mount Rushmore. So when I tell the story, when I was still working, I would always say, well, now I tell my uh, family, I hope I never work in Hawaii. <laughs> so they asked me if I'd be interested in, in Mount Rushmore. And I knew that it was a place that was very interesting. And the fact that they basically made a treaty, they being the United States government, broke that treaty took the tribes out of the Black Hills and put them on the reservations of today. And as some people think, they're still paying, the, they being the tribes of South Dakota, are still paying for defeating George Custer in 1876. They took them out of their breadbasket and they put them in essentially a third world environment with no good water, with a huge welfare system, introduce alcohol in the time of trade, and there's a lot of negative things. And of course, a lot of people, and I will use that word here, a lot of our Indian people hate Mount Rushmore. 
So unlike accepting the job at Lewis and Clark, where it took me about 10 seconds to say yes, this took me four days to accept the job at Mount Rushmore as the first American Indian to be in charge, as I say, of four great big white guys. <laughs> and so what I did in those four days was not only pray about it, sit in some really good sweats with the elders. But I started calling around, I started talking to Indian people, and I started saying, how do I do this? Should I do this, first of all? Should I go in here as an American Indian, knowing what happened to our people, to, this, to the Lakotas and Ogallalas, and the rest of the Lakota, Nakota, Dakota nations, all the other tribes that utilized it? Should I go in there? And what I expected them to say, finally, or primarily, I should say, is I expected them to say, whatever you do, do not go there. You'll be a traitor. You know, I never heard that. I heard it from some young people. But the elders gave me confidence. The elders, especially the grandmother types, they said, by all means, go there. By all means, what a place to start healing for the youth of tomorrow. What a place to start creating a dialogue to sit down once and for all and tell that true side. And I got to thinking, that's great advice. So I took it. And I went there. Again, the first time being there, it was right after 9-1-1. Our country was still full of emotion, as I hope we still are. And I would went there without, in my, my civvies, walking around the grounds of Mount Rushmore and watching people. And I was told by many Indian people, you know, you're never going to see Indians there. And they were wrong. But I would watch around, I would walk, and I would see people go up, and I would see them look at those four presidents up there. Indians included, by the way, standing there and looking at them with tears coming down. Just like I would see the days at Little Bighorn when the people started come back, came back to that battlefield and the grandmothers especially would look up on that, stand up on that hill overlooking that battlefield crying. Later on today, I would meet some of them and I would sit down beside them and we would have coffee and they would tell me why they were crying. They would tell me it's not the fact that they won and not the fact that they lost a loved one there. It was the fact that that changed Indian America after that battle. And when I got to Rushmore, it was the same thing. I'd watch these people. But it was a fact then the emotion was still there that our country got attacked, that our loved ones would now go back to war And I started listening to our programs, and it was all about the rah-rah of America, which is great, folks, especially after episode like 911. But I got to thinking, we also need the second half of this. We need to get Indian people here to advise, to consult. I got my staff together, all white staff, by the way, great folks, great folks. And I asked them one question the first day I was there. I said, how many of you have been to a reservation? Keep in mind, Pine Ridge was only about, what, 60, 60 miles away. One person. One person. So I said, OK, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to contact all the different tribal agencies, the consuls. And those of you that are in the United States government, you know that we have the government-to-government -government relationship with the tribes. Well, I take that one step farther. And I encourage you in your jobs to do that as well, because, yeah, we're used to dealing with the government. We're used to dealing with the tribal, tribal chairmen. There's nothing wrong with that. They should be involved. They need to be involved. And by law, they should be involved. But I also encourage there's one more set of communication that you need to establish. And that's with the elders males and females, and with the youth. Because there is a new resurgence in this country of culture among all of us. 
They're getting interested again. And so what I did is I told my staff, we're going to go to the tribes. And I'm going to ask the consuls if they could bring in the youth and the elders. And we're going to go see every one of our seven reservations in South Dakota. And yes, we are going to wear uniforms. Because that was a big issue. And as I start gathering names, I start getting people to, to I get organized as far as the meetings. The staff started having more and more questions. And it was interesting because I didn't realize all my life, maybe I had hints about it, but I realized that my, my staff had no idea how to talk to Indian people. Now, we come from a generation, at least up in North and in our part of the world, where we still have a lot of the systems that we were there all of our, all of our creation. Things like not looking people in the eye when you talk to them because it is rude. Things like not really sometimes talking directly to a grandmother. And it was amazing because we started talking about these things in staff meetings before we went. And after a certain point, I said, well, we're, we're just going to jump in the fire. And so we lined them up and we started going. And I told them, I said, because we are from Mount Rushmore, because we are government, expect to catch hell for a while. And I started talking to them about the fact that all these years, all these generations, we have expected Indians I'm speaking as government now, to do it our way, to abide by our rules, everything from the Roberts Rules of Orders to everything else. Well, you know what, folks? As I told them, think about the other side. Now, I'm not being negative. Why do they have to come to us all the time? Why can't we learn that way? And we go to them. Rather than us setting things up, always coming to us. But in order, to, in order to do that, you have to understand the culture. And the culture has changed, as we all know. I don't think we have any real elders left. We do, in certain aspects of their, of their lives. But so much has changed. As my older brother, who's in his middle 70s now, he told me the other day, he said, well, I'm one of the elders. I said, no, you're not. You're just old. <laughs> the true elders were the ones that sat around our kitchen table when I was a kid and told stories of counting coups and told stories about gardens and told stories about traditions that they lived. And so I took this to the people. I took this to the staff and said, keep that in mind. Read all you can for a while. Yeah, there's some good books out there. Black Elk speaks about the Black Hills, on and on and on. But you'll learn when you go there. And we did that. We went there. And the thing that we did there was talk, first of all. And yes, we did catch hell. And I told them, because I would introduce everybody. And I said, don't talk, government talk. Don't talk government talk. Humanize yourself when you go among the people. Humanize yourself. Talk about who you are. Talk about your parents. Talk about your siblings. Talk about how you grew up. Because we, had, we as government agents sometimes push our government shield in front of us. Maybe as do historians, as do anthropologists, as do archaeologists, including on and on and on. So humanize yourself. When you humanize yourself with somebody, it makes it more open to a, to a complete and true discussion. As a government worker for the last 35 years, I've known and I've grown very thick skin. But I'm also understanding what they say as well, what they, the American Indians, say as well. And so I told the staff to do that. And they had a very tough time. But we did. I can remember after the second, we went to Pine Ridge, went to Lower Brule, or um, Rosebud. 
we met with the Rosebud folks the second, the second meeting, and I can remember one of my staff members, a chief of interpretation, leaving the group we got through. We were getting ready to get in our van. I couldn't find her. And they, somebody said, she's seen her walking around the building. I went over there, and she's standing there bawling her eyes out. And I thought something happened. Somebody said something mean to her. And she looked at me. I said, I said what happened? She said, I can't believe how much they care. I can't believe how much they care. Sometimes we don't think about that. Sometimes we're too in tune to academics. Sometimes we're too in tune on getting the real story. There's never one real story. There's many of them to make a fact. And so I had an idea to bring people back into Rushmore. And as I said before, I was told that we would never have any people there. Well, the second week I was there, of course, the first week I was there, I seen a lot of folks there. Second week I came in uniform, and I can remember it was, a, it was a family from Wind River Reservation. Grandpa, grandpa-looking guy, and a grandma-looking lady, and younger ones, and kids. So I went over there, I was all excited, man. I see some Indians there, I'm a uniform mom, and I went over there, and I started talking to them, and we're visiting, 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 visiting. All of a sudden, the old man, the grandpa says, hey, so what do you do here? Here you go, man. As I'm the superintendent, and they all bust out laughing. I said, no, really, I'm the superintendent. I'm in charge of this place. I had to take it back to my office and actually show them. <laughs> Finally, believe me. Well, I had an idea. Because I said, as I mentioned before, a lot of people would say that you would never have Indians there. You would never have Indians coming there because it was stolen from the Indian people. And they put up four presidents that they brag about. Now, as I tell people, excuse me, there was, there is things to brag about those presidents. There really is. I like to study them. They're forward thinking about this country and about the freedoms. But there's a bad side to them as well, as we all know. And I started telling the staff especially the interpreters, especially everybody, because again, it was National Park Service, I don't care if you're maintenance, if you wear that uniform, you're gonna get questions asked. And I started telling them, I said, let's, let's, let's listen to the complete story. Yes, we brag about those four presidents and there's reasons they were put there. And the legislation that Mount Rushmore talks about the purpose based on those four presidents. And based on those four presidents, we are to tell only the first 150 years of the story of America, from Washington to Teddy Roosevelt. So we started talking about that. I said, well, you know, there's a lot of questions out there that we're going to ask. And in fact, some of the past, past superintendents, I'll never mention names, but they made comments to my staff, and they said, one thing we will never do here is we will never talk about American Indians. This isn't the place for it. Well, I strongly disagreed. And I said the best way to do it is to get people together. And how do you do that? You put on the feed. So I went around to all the different tribes at these meetings, by the way, with my staff and recommended that we have and what I called, would call an elder summit. Because if you, if you start doing interpretation, you start doing the history, obviously everybody has a story, it's very good. They want their story told in completeness. But working in a national park system, sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes you have 15 minutes to do a program. Sometimes you have 20 minutes to do a program. And of course, the emphasis is on those four presidents. And so we got, what, what I, what I, again, we got the elder summit going, and we were really scared because we thought, man, the elders aren't going to come here. We had 87 show up from seven reservations in South Dakota. And the staff was concerned because they would come and say, man, all they're going to do is they're, they're just going to badmouth us. So maybe we'll learn something. But we sat around there and we started talking to them and they had elders that were in charge. There was 
A lot of medicine folks there, which I was very happy to see. And we started talking around the room. It was in our cafeteria at, at uh, Mount Rushmore. And we started talking about that, and the elders were starting to say, okay, you got to tell this and this and this and this and this and this. And one of the things we would say is that if we only have 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 20 minutes or even 45 minutes, how can we tell a thousand years of history and have people explain it and have people understand it? And like I said with Lewis, my, my Lewis and Clark days, I told the staff and I told the elders as well, this is our goal. The goal we're going to have here is when people leave this site, when people leave Mount Rushmore, I don't want them to have all the answers. I don't want them to think they know everything. I want them to leave with more questions than answers. Because if they leave with more questions than answers, they're either apt to come back, they're apt to do more research, they're apt to talk, and they're apt to listen. And to me, that's what gets them going in history. And so because of that, we started a village, what, I, what we called an heritage village. And it served a couple purposes. We put up teepees, and by the way, in the first year I was there, we put up one teepee because we had nothing Indian there except the hills, except the Pahasapa, the Black Hills. So I put up one teepee with no interpretation, by the way. And I can remember one day going out there, and the flaps were kind of messed up, so I was by myself, and I started fixing the flaps, messing around. I looked back, and there was about 20 people standing there. Ah, I'm an old interpreter. What the heck? So I turned around, and I started talking. By the time I got there talking, there was about 200 people. I'm finding out that people are coming to these, these locations, and they're not really wondering too much about the presidents. They're wondering what happened to the people. And so I decided to, to leave that teepee up. And in fact, I got feedback from the national office in Washington, DC. And it was after 1998 where we had um, redone, refaced, re re if you will, most of Mount Rushmore, added all kinds of real fancy things. And one of the leadership in D.C. got very upset with me because I was infiltrating on the visual integrity of Mount Rushmore by putting a teepee up. So I put up three more teepees. <laughs> and we made a little village. And we started asking the elders to come in. And again, we, the biggest thing that we had to understand, we being the staff of Mount Rushmore, is how to, how to talk with the folks, how to understand the folks, the elders, and the Indian people. But it didn't go over so good locally. As when I retired, we were still getting letters, I was still getting letters in the local paper that said, I need to be removed, take the teepees down, put them down at Crazy Horse, where the Indians should be, and leave Mount Rushmore to the rest of us Americans. Those letters are still coming. So what does that mean? That means that we still haven't understood how to communicate. We basically haven't understood how to listen to all sides. There is a new generation coming in, as I mentioned when I first talked a while ago. And it's a new generation that is reading more history. It's a new generation that is focusing on the past to tell the future. And there's challenges with that. The challenges are as we get more and we are getting more and more and more pride within ourselves as to who we are as American Indians, as Americans, as cultural Americans. 
that we are trying to rediscover who we are with all the other influences going on in America. And the challenge is, how do you bring the unheard into your museums, into the national parks? And how do you understand that? The thing I would encourage people to do, if, you're, if you associate with, I don't care how small your area is, if, even if it's a tribal park, is bring people together. You may not hear what you want to hear, but bring people together and give them an opportunity to tell their side. As I said, I believe in academics. I believe in academia. I really do. I also believe in the unwritten, the oral histories. But again, they're getting more and more challenging because we are actually losing a lot of our storytellers. The ones a long time ago when I was a kid that had the right and the medicine to tell those stories. What we do now is we gather in groups, we have summits, it'd be my recommendation. Bring people in from all walks of life if you're dealing with American Indians. But before you do that, understand what those tribes went with and went through. Learn how to do business their way. We may not agree with their way sometimes. But learn how to do business their way. I think we're making a mistake if we expect the tribes to come our, the way we do business. Very regimented sometimes. We don't work that way. It's great to sit around and humanize. It's great to ask questions of the one who never speak in the room. Maybe not in front of everybody, but by themselves. Get their ideas. And we have opportunities now to work with colleges and tribal colleges to make internships and hear that native voice. But again, keep in mind that there's going to be opposition. I like controversy. Most of my career, they always tell me I created controversy. I didn't create it. It was always there. I just brought it out. Because you learn by controversy. You learn by hearing something you don't want to hear or telling something you don't want to tell. And it's that time right now that we start doing that. For many, many years when I was growing up, I had a very dis dislike for cultural anthropologists because we had them all the time at my dad's place, recording, taking pictures, and going away and writing their books. And we're not getting anything out of it. I got to tell you, my oldest daughter, she's now a cultural anthropologist, <laughs> working out of Southwest. So we have plenty of talks. We have to have understanding that communication, as we all know and hear from our past, the main subject of that is listening. So I encourage you to start your communication with the tribes if you haven't already done so, but to understand their way. Even if you're a young American Indian, learn the elders' way. The controversy is going to be that some of the, some of the officials, I believe, aren't ready to make that change yet in different arenas, but the tribes are. I'm very proud of the fact that a lot of tribes have their own little museums now. But I know there's the challenge of that is getting the young people involved as well. And there's always going to be that. As I tell people and told my staff forever, get involved in the communities. Go to the dances. Go to the modern day warrior arenas, huh? the basketball games, the volleyball games, the football games, 
rodeos. This is how you get to meet people. And once you get to meet people, once you're in that trust, you'll be surprised how much of the story you didn't know. Again, I encourage you to take that step. And I encourage you not to let anything called controversy step in your way. We have a long ways to go in this country when it comes to history. And I applaud you for what you're doing in your arenas. I encourage you to get out to those reserves, reservations, Indian country, whatever we call it. Because there's a whole lot of history back there that we don't know about yet. That if we don't do something, it truly will be lost. Thank you very much for listening to me this morning. I hope. Oh, thank you very much. Oh. Thank you very much. Okay, I guess we got some, uh, do we got time for some questions? Anybody have any questions? I can't see who you are. <laughs> but if you have any questions, uh, or if not, I'll be up here, whatever we want to do, I guess. Anybody have any questions? Can you yell them out? Everybody's hungry? <laughs> Thanks again. <laughs>